please have open that passage which we read a moment ago. Galatians chapter 4. We'll look at a chunk from verse 21 uh, right through into to chapter 5, verse 12. Just before we come to look at this passage together, I want to, to say thank you to Fiona for leading us this evening and to our musicians and singers. Uh, I don't do this every week. Um, and I want to thank all of you for joining together with me to worship God this evening. Uh, one of the, the things that the Bible teaches is that when we gather together, uh, we're to be an encouragement to one another. In Hebrews, we're encouraged, do not give up meeting together to encourage one another. And, and tonight, I just want you to know that you've been an encouragement to me. It's been a, a long and tiring week in the Ebbinghouse family as uh, our youngest daughter uh, Ruby has been sick and spent a couple of nights in hospital. So I come just a little bit lower in energy than, than I would like to be. But tonight, already, we have worshipped God together. And I thank you for, for your encouragement in that. Let's pray just before we come to look at this part of Galatians together. Let's pray just now. Father God, we are prone to wander. Uh, we, when we're left to our own devices, we get many things wrong and we wander from your will and your ways. Thank you for all that you've already taught us in our studies in Galatians. And we pray that this evening you would give us again a little more clarity. Show us more clearly your mind and your will that we might be women and men who, who know you better and love you more and serve you with more of a heart in this world. Lord, come by your Spirit and make your word live in us this evening. Amen. We dream of freedom we give endless amounts of our time and our energy uh, to pursuing that dream. And, and our dreams of freedom vary a little bit from one person to the next. For some, uh, we want more power than we have to, to shake off those people who are uh, controlling us. For others, it's, it's freedom of, of sexual expression. For others, it's fame or, or more leisure, more time on their hands to to, to live whatever way they wish. This quest for freedom ha, has seen whole industries spring up. Have a careful look uh, at the, the ads next time you're watching TV and see how many of them offer some form of freedom uh, to, to us uh, as we watch and consider the product on offer. Political movements are founded under freedom banners. So we live in a world awash with the promise of freedom and in a world where, where we dream of being free. And yet the sad truth is that most of us, most of the time, lack any great sense of freedom in our lives. Despite all of our dreaming and despite all of the ways in which we chase freedom, if you get us in a, a quiet corner in a quiet place, we'll confess to you that rather than feeling free, we feel hassled, sometimes bored, 
and often trapped. Here at Kirkpatrick Memorial, we're learning to follow Jesus Christ. So we're learning to follow the freest person who ever lived and one who offers us this freedom. Jesus once told his disciples, if you hold to my teaching, then you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So we're people who who already somehow have been set free in Jesus Christ and people who, as far as I can tell, are, are simply wanting to learn more and more how to live in this freedom. Before we begin to look for a few minutes this evening at this chunk of Paul's letter of freedom, I want you to picture with me for a moment a guy walking into a car showroom. Lots of shiny cars on display under the bright, dazzling lights. The walls are hung with very tasteful photographs of these splendid machines sometimes driving through roads in snow-capped mountain landscapes, sometimes cruising across a deserted beach. A smiling, friendly person met the man as soon as he'd come through the door and took an immediate interest in him. They exchanged their names. An attractive woman appeared with a fresh-brewed cup of coffee, and the two men sat on the expensive furniture, and within a few minutes they were talking like old friends. The man felt important, attractive, and valued. They began talking about the various models of cars. They they paid a lot of attention to the marvelous features and and to the breathtaking technology. Suddenly the man hesitated. He he voiced some reservations. Uh, You know, maybe you should talk this over with a friend or... Or maybe you should think for a couple of days before making any radical decision. The sales consultant showed just the right amount of concern. He demonstrated with great ease that none of these obstacles, these imagined obstacles, need stand in the way of the man getting what he really wanted. He could have one of these cars, and he could have it today. He could have any help that he needed. No problem was too small to merit attention. So the steps towards signing the contract were all negotiated with great skill by the sales rep. Every minute with his new friend made this man feel more intelligent, more in control of his life, the master of the mysteries of finance and technology. In a couple of hours the man left the place feeling more complete than he'd done for a long time. He was the owner of a new car. He had a sense of freedom as he took that car out onto the road. He had a sense of control as the car responded to his every movement. And he had a marvelous new friend who'd helped him to get it and promise to look after him in the future. A month later, terrible noises started to come from under the bonnet of the car, but the man wasn't worried at all because he knew he had his friend. He'd go back to his good friend who had promised so much. 
He'd go back to the shiny showroom with the bright lights where he had that first exhilarating experience of freedom and everything would be all right. He went back, but his friend wasn't there. And the attractive coffee lady wasn't there either. He was directed through another door into another part of the building, a cold, dark, and noisy part of the building. There were no seats to sit on and no one to pay him any attention. Finally, he found a guy who looked like he might be in charge, and this guy told him that he was in a queue behind six other people, and they would have to wait for attention. It took a couple of hours, and eventually the arrangements were made to get his engine fixed later that week. All the time, the man couldn't help but feeling like an intruder in the showroom. By the time he left, he felt incompetent and friendless and helpless. A lot of us here this evening could tell some variation of that story. The product changes and the, the setting might vary, but the experience is the same. People treat us like VIPs until they get what they want out of us. They'll approach us and offer us a wonderful kind of friendship, only to discover later that that wasn't friendship at all. It was simply a skillfully acted performance, something to get us into the right frame of mind to buy a product to make somebody richer. Once the transaction is completed, the performance ends. It's something that we see lived out time and time again in business, in education, in government, in hospitals, in homes, and in churches. Sometimes we're aware of what's going on, but sometimes we need somebody to to point these things out to us. The Galatians were in the middle of just this kind of experience. They had been wowed by the Judaizers. They didn't seem to see where all this was headed. But the Apostle Paul, their founding pastor, he saw what was going on all right. And he set about warning them. At this point, when Paul's writing to them, they're still in the the honeymoon period with these guys who are leading them astray. But Paul wants to reach them before it's too late. I want to deal with our passage almost entirely in reverse order this evening. I want to begin by looking at, again, at one of Paul's warnings against these guys who are trying to lead them astray. Look at chapter 5, verse 7. He says, You were running a good race. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who called you. And then he goes on to tell them that this is no trivial matter. A little yeast works through a whole batch of dough. He's echoing here, isn't he, the words that we saw in in our morning series last week. In Matthew 16, Jesus warned his disciples against the yeast, the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Jesus knew that just like a little amount of yeast can change a whole loaf of bread, so a little, or what seems like a little, corrupt teaching can can change a whole community. 
It's the same here in Galatia. This teaching about the need for for Gentile Christians to be circumcised, for them to obey the Jewish law, this is no insignificant detail. It can undermine the whole of, of what God has done already in that community through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul doesn't hold back in his condemnation of these false teachers. In verse 10 he says, The one who is throwing you into confusion will pay the penalty, whoever he may be. And in verse 12 he puts it in the harshest possible language. As for those agitators, I wish they'd go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Luther captures Paul's intended meaning best here in his very earthy translation. Tell those guys who are disturbing you and making such a big deal of circumcision that I'd love to see the knife slip. Harsh words indeed. Yeah, I don't mind a, a chuckle there. I think there's a bit of, bit of humor there, earthier than we imagine in God's word. Paul is furious. We've seen that over and over again. He's furious with these Judaizers trying to impose law on these new Gentile Christians. But folks, there's something that that has struck me as I've begun to think about Galatians. If we're really going to get a handle on this issue and understand why, why legalism is important in the contemporary church, I think we need to ask a why question. Why does legalism happen? Why do religious leaders impose unnecessary laws on God's people? Why is legalism rife in the Christian church? Back in chapter 4 and verse 17, a part of the passage which Dan looked at last week, Paul suggests that it's all about power. Those people are zealous to win you over says Paul, but for no good. What they want to do is alienate you from us so that you might be zealous for them. They're flattering you, Paul says, but they've no interest in leading you to a better and a freer place. They're only interested in getting what they want out of you. Once they get that, what they want, you won't save them or hear from them again. They only want to use you. If you allow yourselves to be used, you're going to be back in that same old life again, the life of slavery. Legalism in the Christian church is usually about leaders wanting to get people to do what they want them to do. That's what Paul says in Galatians. And it seems to me that he's probably not too far wrong. Paul fears for these Gentile Christians in Galatia. He wants to keep them from falling captive. So that's why he begins chapter 5, verse 1, with the the verse that Fiona picked up on. It's sort of like a, a key verse in this passage, but probably in the whole book. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and don't let yourselves be burdened again with a yoke of slavery. I find this very interesting about Galatians, and I didn't really understand it before studying it more deeply now. Paul spends more time challenging the Christians who allow themselves to be drawn into legalism than he does challenging the leaders who do that. 
Now that's interesting. We had imagined that the focus would only be on the leaders. Don't impose your rules on people. But no, Paul challenges those who allow themselves to be drawn. And he says, stand firm. Don't allow yourselves to be enslaved. So here's a second important question about legalism in the church. If the first question is, is why it arises? Why do people impose it? The second important question, why do Christian people allow themselves to be enslaved? Why do so many of God's people live seemingly content with the legalism that's rife in our church communities? Why does that happen? Well, again, it's about control. Living under legalism gives us a wonderful sense of control. If we wear the right kinds of clothes and go to the right kinds of meetings and use the right kinds of Bibles, then we're always going to know where we stand. If I know that I can do A, B, and C to make me more acceptable in God's eyes than the person who doesn't do A, B, and C, then by doing them, I can advance my status. I can know that I'm better than him or than her. What a wonderful religion. It's brilliant. I'm totally in control. You've got to love that. Friends, when we live this way, we don't have to live by faith. Trusting God that he receives us in his mercy. We don't have to live loving our neighbor. Trusting God that despite appearances, he loves them too. And that they somehow are his child. This legalism, it offers us a wonderful security system. We don't have to live by faith. We don't have to trust God. We can trust in ourselves. And let's face it, we'd all far rather do that. Paul warns the Galatians of even starting to set off down this road. Look at verse 2 in chapter 5. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you allow yourselves to be circumcised, Christ will be of no value at all to you. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he's required to obey the whole law. I don't want to go through this in much detail, but simply to remind you that Paul's talked about this stuff before. He's talked in chapter 3 about the futility of trying to please God by obeying the law. Chapter 3, verse 10. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it's written, Cursed is anyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Paul said it then and he says it again now. If you want to please God by obeying the law, go ahead. But know that you must keep the whole law and no human being has ever or will ever prove capable of that. It's a futile, a futile attempt. You live under God's curse. But Paul goes on to, to demonstrate the demand, uh, the, the disastrous effects of, of legalism. Look at verse 4. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You've fallen away from grace. 
Legalism doesn't draw us closer to Christ. It's no demonstration of a greater love for him. It drives us from Christ, says Paul. We begin to imagine that we, need, we don't need God's grace or that we need it less. Paul's spoken on that subject already as well. Chapter 2, verse 21. He says, I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Friends, we said it this morning and we say it again this evening. Christ did not die for nothing. He died because you and I are all in the same boat. We're sinful men and women destined for a life without God and destruction. Christ died to rescue us. Without the cross of Jesus Christ, we're stuffed. But with Christ, thanks be to God, we have his indescribable gift, his mercy and his grace. I've been working backwards through our passage this evening. I want at this point to to take a moment to deal with the opening verses. Chapter 4, verses 21 to 31. When I was researching these passages, I came across a really encouraging opening line in one of the commentaries. Many people regard this as the most difficult passage in the epistle to the Galatians. I thought, brilliant. Uh, I'm delighted. Uh, I should have seen that coming and handed it to one of the other boys to preach on. Uh, But I didn't see it coming, so it landed with me. I've read a few different interpretations of this passage. Some of them end up being very, very technical. I'd like like to offer you one very straightforward interpretation that I came across because I think it sits very naturally with everything else that we've seen in this passage so far this evening. In these verses, Paul retells the well-known story of Isaac and Ishmael. It's a story about the freedom that comes when we trust God to be in control and the total loss of freedom that results when we try to take control ourselves. God had promised Abraham, Abraham, you're going to be the father of the faithful All the nations of the world are going to be blessed through you. But there was a problem. Abram didn't have a child. He had a promise of a child, but he had no child. The years piled up and still there was no child. Abram still had God's promise, but he had nothing to show for it. Trusting the promise was becoming more and more absurd with each passing month and year. Sarah was by now an old woman and was barren. If ever there was a situation, a clear case of God would help those who help themselves, then this was it. Abram and Sarah couldn't conceive, so instead they conceived a plan Sarah's maid, Hagar, she'll bear the child. And the plan was was wonderful, loaded with common sense. They agreed on it quickly. They acted on it. Hagar became pregnant and Ishmael was born. A few months, a few years later, sorry, Sarah conceived and she gave birth to Isaac. 
So that's the story. Here in Galatians chapter 4, Paul reaches back to this well-known foundational story in the life of God's people, and he selects one point to drive home his message on freedom. His point is simply this. One of those sons was born because of God's promise. The other was born because Abraham doubted. Ishmael born of human impatience, the human trying to be, do God's work for him. Isaac, the result of God doing God's work in God's time. Ishmael caused nothing but trouble. Isaac becomes the channel of God's blessing to God's people and to the whole world. Folks, this is the great disaster of Abram's life. He used Hagar to get what he thought God wanted for him. And the great achievement of Abram's life is that he allowed God to give him in the end, what God always wanted him to have. His greatest achievement came when God did for him something apart from all his programs, all his planning, all his controlling. So the lesson of history here is clear enough. The moment we begin manipulating the lives of others in order to control circumstances, we become enslaved in our own plans. We get tangled in our own red tape and we have to live with the unpleasant, unintended circumstances. Do you know who Ishmael's descendants were? The Arabs. They complicated the life of faith for God's people from then on for centuries. The life of faith is not a life of manipulation of control of rules and regulation. It's a life of receiving, of believing, of accepting, and of hoping. God keeps his promises. Your job and mine is to trust him. We're nearly out of time here this evening, so I want to begin to wrap things up. In the opening verse of chapter 5, we find Paul summarizing a lot of what he's going to say throughout this letter. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and don't allow yourselves to be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. God wants his people to be free and to learn to trust him. It breaks his heart when he sees us allowing ourselves to to be enslaved and controlled by people who want to manipulate us only to get something out of us. We must refuse. You must refuse. And here I am preaching as somebody charged with giving leadership in this place. If ever I or any other leader in this place comes in on you to restrict your gospel freedom, you must refuse. You must shake us off because of what God's Word teaches and because of the whole truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
I want to leave things hanging a little bit open-ended this evening, if that's okay with you. I want to pick up on a question that's been brewing in my mind. It's sort of beginning to gather momentum in this passage, and maybe it's a question that's on your mind too. How's this all going to work? If if it's not about law, and it's not about rules and regulations, how's how's the thing going to work? If Christ wants us to be free, if he wants us to, to refuse those who will try and impose their, their structures and their regulations on us, how will the church function? Will we not inevitably slide into to moral anarchy and, and corruption? Surely we need the rules to help us behave. If we don't live by rules How is God ever going to make us good? Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, let me share a secret with you. It's a secret that's been dawning ever so slowly on me. The further I go, the more I realize just how slow and how thick I am. But let me share this with you, just in case there are one or two others who who aren't yet seeing this either. There's a light slowly beginning to go on with me. We can't make people behave. Even the best church leaders can't make people good. And we're not supposed to. That's God's job. That's something that he is going to get on with. He's the the one who's going to make something of us and something of other people, our brothers and sisters in Christ here at Kirkpatrick Memorial. Look at verses 5 and 6 of chapter 5. Maybe for the first time in this letter, Paul gives us a glimpse of the alternative. He spent pretty much the whole time so far telling us how it doesn't work. Refuting this notion that it's all about rules, regulations, about law. He tells us now that this new life in Christ is by faith. And that we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. In Christ neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Friends, in Christ, we walk into a brave new world. We walk into a place where the clothes that you wear or don't wear doesn't matter. Where the meetings that you go to or don't go to doesn't matter. Where the Bibles that you use or don't use doesn't matter. God has saved us by his grace. He's going to look after us from here on in. As we lose ourselves more and more in greater and greater trust in him, he's going to make something of us by his spirit. He's going to give us the thing that he really wants us to have, a real faith 
that naturally expresses itself in real love. A life where nobody has to tell us how to be good and give us rules to keep us good because we are becoming good. It's something from within. It's a spirit of God thing. A life beyond rules. A life of freedom. I said I'd leave this a little bit open-ended. This is something that we're going to learn more about in the last couple of studies in Galatians here in the weeks to come. Let's join together and let's pray. Father God, this is a, a lesson that we learn slowly and with great difficulty. Somewhere in the heart of us, we imagine that life with you is all about, all about restriction, all about the things that you call us not to do, all about a, a being squeezed into a smaller and a smaller life. And yet here we see that you invite us into the wide open places of the gospel. A place where there's air to breathe and space to move and joy to be had and freedom to be known. Father God, would you, would you impress this on our hearts? Would you set us free from all those things that keep us afraid, that keep us rule-oriented, that keep us legalistic? Show us that we can trust you with our own lives and with the lives of the guys sitting beside us and in front of us and behind us. Help us to trust you and walk into the full freedom that Jesus offers us. Lord, we honestly and sincerely ask for your help because we know that we need it at this point. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.